guys, welcome to another episode of Live with the Cork in the Road. I'm Kelly. I'm your wine explorer here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am chatting with people who are shaping the Southeast wine industry. Hello, welcome to the Cork in the Road podcast. I'm Kelly. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I feel really lucky to have you pushing play today. I am still smiling about several big events that we had this past weekend, and they both involved rosé. I feel like I've had a lot of pink wine in the past 72 hours, but that's because we hosted a virtual tasting in partnership with Telesom and Bouchonography, who sent out little tasting kits of beautiful rosés to lots of people in several different time zones around the United States. And then I got to jump on the Zoom call and geek out about Rosé for an hour. It was really, really fun. So thank you to everybody who tuned in for that and more events like that to come. I also hosted a Rosé bottle share with a bunch of industry folks, thanks to Clark Anderson, who partnered up with me to do this. We had a lot of people come out to a backyard at a restaurant in Decatur, Georgia, and the mission was bring a Rosé to share. When you say that to a lot of wine industry people and wine lovers, you end up getting a pretty cool flight of wine. So the pictures and recaps can be found online at A Cork in the Road. There were some pretty cool bottles in attendance this weekend here in Atlanta. So thank you to everybody who showed up and did not disappoint with the sharing is caring mentality for this type of event. My guest today is someone who appreciates the world of both wine and food. I got to talk with Henna Bakshi. She's a producer at HLN, a sister network of CNN, an on-camera personality whose whole role and portfolio is everything food and wine. We got to talk about how this love in culinary arts was parallel to learning about beverage and actually started with beer but jumped into wine. She gives a really unique cultural perspective on how this interest and this curiosity came to be and now she's combining that love. She just hosted her first pop-up that was a very intentional choreographed type of dinner where she did all the cooking and all the wine pairings with a bunch of people who didn't know each other. And the whole goal for her was to see what happens. And so in this episode, she tells us what happens. So thank you, Hannah, for being on the show. It is her birthday, the week that this podcast will be released. Her 30th birthday is on May 19th. So happy birthday. And I hope that you are eating and drinking some wonderful things to celebrate. Next week is the season finale of season six. This podcast episode that will round out the season was recorded in person here in Atlanta. So stay tuned for that conversation. Thank you to all my guests who have been on season six. After season six rounds out, we will still be producing the podcast. We're just going to do a little bit different schedule and we do have a monthly sponsor coming up. So those are opportunities and I can't wait to share all that's in store. We have some really cool collaborations and partnerships and even some new venues that we're working with in Atlanta for live in-person events. So stay tuned for all of that. It'll all be announced shortly. If you want the latest updates, make sure you sign up for our newsletter. You can go to www.acorkintheroad.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at A Cork in the Road. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to do this show. I love doing this show. I love talking to my guests. So more adventures to come. And for this week, have a glass of rosé, try some new spices in the kitchen, and cheers to all of you, and I will talk to you next week. 
Good to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Totally. Thank you so much for having me. This is honestly so awesome. I'm so happy to be on. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I know you, but I don't think I've met you in person. I know though, what I do know is that we have a very mutual love for a lot of the same wines and a lot of the same wine shops. Uh, yes, DRNK, you sent me there. PAX, you sent me there. Perrines were like regulars there. So yes, definitely. We have a <laughs> lot of the same like actually very specific label wines that we drink at home. So I love that you're on the show. You have been traveling though very recently. I am so glad I caught you because I think you travel a lot, but I saw a beautiful photo from Miami. You went to some Michelin places. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, so uh, Miami was a work trip. So we were there just shooting a couple of pieces. Um, and I went to Hakkasan, which is a Michelin star place that started in London, and they've opened up quite a few places in the US. And then we went to Chef Jose Andre's restaurant, which was, oh my God, amazing. It was like molecular gastronomy, lemon air on Brussels sprouts. I mean, it was the works. It was totally bougie. It was, you know, the works. I loved it. <laughs> what kind of work trip allows you to also go to Michelin star restaurants? <laughs> So my day job is um, I'm a producer at HLN, uh, which is CNN Sister Network. And uh, my beat right now uh, that I cover, all the pieces that I do uh, are food and wine, uh, travel, fashion, and some true crime. So essentially the dream job, <laughs> like I absolutely love all of these things. Uh, so that is what I do for my day job. Uh, my interest is wine in wine, I think helps. Like it would be a part of all of those things. But every time I travel, I love to see the food heartbeat of, of the place and, and where it's at. So that's kind of what I love to do. I feel like true crime is one of those, like one of these things is not like the other. Like I did not <laughs> expect you to put that at the end of that sentence of things, but yeah. what a great combination of topics and people and places to explore. Yeah. What do you love about those Michelin dining experiences when you do get to go? Oh, man. I mean, so I am a true believer in elevation, um, especially when it comes to cooking. So it's like, you know, you're making family recipes, you're, you're traveling across the world. I'm an immigrant. Uh, so learning is just part of life. Um, so what I love about dining at fine dining places is you see that elevation, you take something very simple and pure, and you're able to put it at just a higher level, which is just so beautiful to see. Um, that being said, I love dining locally. I love, you know, the local shops and, and you know, getting into that hidden gem, you know, that no one's ever heard of. I think there's just a beauty to all of it. Yeah, I guess we can't always go to Michelin restaurants every night. I mean, I'm sure some people can, but you also like supporting your local places. But then I saw you in the wine cellar as well. Does this happen often? Okay, so knowing you, I know you're a super inquisitive person. You always have all the questions. That's exactly how I am in restaurants too. If they tell me a song is on staff, I'm like, ooh, where? <laughs> bring them here, bring her here. Like, let's talk, let's have questions. So I think when anyone goes to a restaurant, if you're inquisitive and you ask about the food, you, you wanna know what drove the chef to put, I don't know, turnips on the menu this season, or why a gewürztraminer is on the menu um, from that particular year. If, if you're a little bit curious about these things, you get invited to the behind the scenes. You get invited to the show to take a look at, okay, well, if you're really curious, let me show you. I think in the restaurant world, people are so uh, sharing. They're willing to share their inspirations, their, uh, you know, the flavors that they work with, that all it takes is a curious person. 
Being curious. This comes up a lot on this podcast for wine people, but I think it is in general of not only being curious as the professional, but being curious as the customer, as the person exploring these places. Mm -hmm. I did like that you ended up in the wine cellar. So I think this is a success story of being inquisitive (laughs) and then getting invited to some cool stuff. We're going to dive into your background a little bit, but I have to say congratulations on your first pop-up dinner that actually looked amazing. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. What was the concept? I know it was called Hands. I love that name. What was this all about for you? So this pop-up is something that I've been marinating on the idea for quite a while now, and I wanted to do it with a lot of finesse and focus. Um, It was called Hands because I wanted to encourage a form of informality, um, you know, encourage people to connect on a human level, because I think it takes a lot of handiwork to make wine. It takes literally a lot of hand power. Um, and, And especially with cooking, I cook a lot with my hands. I work a lot with my hands. So there was a lot of different connectivity that I wanted to encourage at the dinner table. So I wanted people to get to know each other over food. I wanted to get, you know, the conversation to be led by food and wine. Um, and that's why I called it hands. But going deeper into the whole idea of connecting on a human level, I also made sure that we started out with ancient world wines, just to see where things began, to honor the roots, to honor, again, like, you know, the handiwork of food and wine. Um, and of course, all the ingredients were local, all the ingredients were from, from farmers markets and stuff. So that was kind of uh, the direction. <laughs> and you did all of the design for the pairings. Did you cook as well? Oh, yes. I made everything from scratch. Everything. It was a Mediterranean menu. It's just something I've been so inspired by lately. The flavors are so clean um, and yet so intensely vibrant at the same time. Um, so Mediterranean, so that's not just Greece. So you do, you know, Lebanon and Israel and North Africa. And, you know, you kind of follow all of those channels to get to a diet that's really beautiful. And you value the conversation that happens over those types of experiences. Did you feel that what you wanted to happen happened in the room? Yes, yes. Okay, this was also a social experiment, mostly for my own satisfaction. (laughs) I'm just going to test it out on people. Um, No family was invited. Um, And I was very particular about that. And no good friends, except for the friend that we hosted the pop-up at. So not a lot of people that I knew very, very well were invited to this pop-up because I just knew that would alter my menu intensely. I know what my dad likes and doesn't like. I know my mom wouldn't eat the deboned fish that I did at the table. I knew my mother-in-law wouldn't like the sweet wines I was serving. I didn't want those inclinations to dictate the storyline that I was trying to build. And then when I had these people, okay, so the people, how they were selected were, they had to be genuinely interested um, in the food and the palate that I kind of work with. So if they've been inquisitive over the years, those were the special invites that went out. And Kelly, I can't even tell you, by the middle of the dinner, people were chatting and talking. There was just a buzz of energy. People were talking. There's glasses. There's clinking. There's plates flying in and out. I mean, it was just fantastic. And there was no formality to it. So that was the perfect bit. It is awesome to hear you say that that is what you noticed because that is beyond was the food good? Of course it was. Was the wine awesome? Of course it was. You picked it. You were very thoughtful. But it's the 
extra part that happens at those dinners that I appreciate you saying that you observed. And congratulations. That is huge. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was so happy with it. I, I, I Down to the plates, to the napkins, to the flowers, to the everything was very, very meticulously planned. Um, and it worked out. So I was very happy. <laughs> so intentional. Well, I'm not surprised that this happened from something that you created because your resume is very impressive. <laughs> Food and wine writer, cooking show host, all these things. What came first for you though, passion, wine or food? Um, so I don't see a difference in between the two. And I say this all the time. Um, wine is food. Um, and uh, <laughs> food is something I've just grown up with. My, my home just growing up has always smelled of cumin and ginger and spices. You know, that was just the smell of home. Um, an inactive kitchen is just a sad home. Uh, so food has just always been a part of life and a part of breathing. But when I got into college and everything, and as soon as I turned, I did turn 21 and everything, an extra menu started showing up behind like just the food. And I was like, there's a whole nother page of options and there's people here to answer my questions. Uh, and that is where the deep dive into beer and wine really started because I could not fathom that. I had a whole nother booklet, a whole nother menu at the table, and I had to know more. It's like a whole other recipe book sitting next to your other recipes and ingredients that you get to play with to create combinations. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So it really did flow one into the next. But what's it like to be on camera describing food? Does it help with describing wines? Like, what is that experience like for you? Oh, man. Um so as, as someone who's interested in food and wine, I, I think you'll agree, the best part is when you get to share it. I mean, you can't sit alone in your living room, eat all this food and drink all day and, and just be like, yeah, I'm satisfied, I'm good. Like, <laughs> so it's, it's just being able to share. And when I do it on camera, I think of the, the camera as just a house guest, as someone who's just there. Um, and and wants to talk about, you know, the intricacies of the food and the wine pairings and how it came about and how I did it. So whenever I do do pieces, I try to, um, again, uh, really focus on a single topic and, and see where we go from there instead of speaking just general and broad. So, for example, this season, I would say, what should you be drinking in the summertime? You know, what's what will um, do well with this kind of weather? Um, and what's happening with maybe global warming, um, you know, how we're seeing a lot of changes in all produce, including vineyards. So that is, that is how I'm selective in the ways I, I talk about food and wine. It's important to have the audience in mind when you are selecting the focus and yes. kind of the, the big picture messaging, and you speak to a broader public-facing audience. In the vast world of wine, there's a lot you could talk about. Do you ever get nervous? Yes. Yes, I do. I get nervous all the time. And mostly because I feel like I'm a total nerd and I geek out over the simplest and corniest of things. And I have to pay attention to that, especially when I'm speaking to an audience that's way broad, that's, you know, it has an age group. You know, I'm focusing on middle America for the HLN audience, perhaps. That is where I have to reel back. You know, it's like, okay, no, no. Let's do it step by step. You know, I can I can easily say pair uh, Pinot Noir with some of your dishes right now. Try them out in the summer versus the fall. You know, something simple like that. 
But the nerd brain in my head is going, but Hannah, you love the Norella Mascalese from Italy right now. Let's talk about that. <laughs> so, so it's just like, just, you know, dialing it back just a little bit and, and, uh, uh, and again, being conversational, right? You're, you're human talking to another person. That That's what you have to remember um, in media, especially. You're not talking to a camera. You're talking to one person. Imagining the camera as a dinner guest is a really good piece of <laughs> advice for people that are trying to communicate in wine. I think if you're sitting in front of your camera for Instagram stories or for a video, you still are talking to that one lens, but you have to think about it as being a person behind there. So I think that's something that can translate to a lot of things. Do you have any guiding principles that you often share? I know you talk a lot about your cooking personally and combining, but knockout pairings or guiding principles, give us some insight here. I, I do. So I love contrasting pairings because in whenever you see um, a plate of Indian food, I think that was just where it originates for me and my palate is you see always a grain, you see either a roti or rice, you see grain, you see um, a lentil curry of some sort. So there you've got, you know, another grain, uh, then you have vegetables and they're dry and that's a different texture. So you've got wet with curry that you've got dry with, you know, a vegetable saute. Then you have always a pickle option, which is your umami. And then you have salad. So you've got acidity. Um, so if I am building that play, what am I missing? I'm missing sweet. So boom, my wine, that's what it's going to do. So that's how I think when I'm plating something. So same goes for, let's see, um, a delicious risotto, right? Like a risotto with white fish. You've got cream, you've got cheese, maybe some truffle. You've got, you know, a nice, beautiful white fish. So you've got a grain, you've got protein, fat, what are we missing? Acidity. Boom. Cut it. Cut right through it. So that's how I that's how I pair. I knew before coming on to this interview that I was going to get hungry while talking to you. I just had this <laughs> feeling. I was like, we're going to talk about food and it's going to be delicious food. And she's going to describe Yay. it in ways that I want it to appear in front of me. So success. That has happened. And now I'm really hungry and I want you to cook for me. But <laughs> the, the way that you're talking about it as the ingredients and the plating of the components, it's beautiful to think about that in terms of wine as well. The components of balance in wine has cooking your own food and designing those types of dishes helped you in your journey toward formal wine education, like the WSET, like, have you used the knowledge in cooking and applied that to wine? Oh, gosh, yes. I am a big believer of a cook's glass. I mean, when I'm cooking, I'm just using the one hand for the ladle, you know, the other hand can do swirling of its own too. So yeah, food and cooking on my own, a diced onion will taste so much more different than a sliced one. Um, minced garlic will taste so much more different than crushed. So just understanding those components of how an organic thing can change helps you understand why a grape is different, why um, something like a sauternes, it's all dried up, you know, and it tastes so, so different from like a regular white wine, even though it is a white wine. Um, so understanding those organic differences and how food changes helps me understand how wine changes, uh, even though it's the same fruit, right? It's just grapes. I feel like you could be someone who would be very fun to geek out with about 
spice flavors in wine and floral mm. components because a lot of that in the cooking and the dishes I see you make, some of the ingredients I can't say I'm as familiar with, but I just try to describe them in wine or it's a big component of palate and, and aromas in wine. And I'm trying to think about, wow, I need to just eat more of these ingredients so I can understand oh. the components. Kelly, you nailed it. You you freaking nailed it. First of all, come over. And- <laughs> <He's> right there. <laughs> Seriously, come over. And second, this is what I do to my dinner guests. They when they, you know, you come over. I bet to your house, my house, or whatever. You hand them a glass of wine, and that's not. It doesn't end there. It's like, okay, now tell me, what are you, what are you getting? I literally have my spice cabinet. I have many different spice cabinets and I pull out all the spices. I was like, oh wait, do you smell dried oregano? Here, smell it, smell dried oregano. It's in the salad. So I always try to bring out some of these spices, some of these dried fruits, especially. And there's some even notes that I pick up that I can only say in Hindi. And I'm like, what's the English word for it? I don't have to Google it and stuff. But I have these tangible things I can smell, I can taste, and then find those in wine immediately. That's so fun. That is so practical, but also extremely helpful for people studying wine. I think it becomes very abstract when you hear these flavors or someone is blind tasting and they're describing, and you've actually physically never put your nose in that spice. You can think about it in terms of a combination of a dish that you may have had, but isolating the spice, isolating the herb is such an advantage for someone who's studying wine. Yes. I mean, what in the world does licorice smell like? And you better believe it's not the candy. That's my favorite one to pull out. It's like, here, check it out. It's this wood spice. So smell that. (laughs) I can't wait to be welcomed with the spice cabinet open. This sounds awesome. You, (laughs) You have also mentioned that your upbringing has been very influential to your cooking and just the way you approach food and wine. It seems like it was part of your soul, part of the alive kitchen at home and in the culture, but was wine on the dinner table as well? Ooh, great question. No, wine was never on the dinner table. Um, I was born and raised in New Delhi. And in New Delhi, um, you were just brought up to be very proper young ladies. And um, drinking was a huge faux pas. I mean, huge. I mean, we're talking big, big taboo. You know, ladies just don't drink. And I never watched my mom drink or any of my family members Um, It was usually like the big burly men who would maybe just have whiskey or something, just a dark, hard alcohol. Wine was just never part of the picture. Um, And in college, so beer is probably the biggest drink that's looked down upon um, in India. Beer is almost considered like this hooligan, you're a street rat, you're going to get into a fight. Like watch a cliche Bollywood movie like from the 90s. And all the bad guys are hanging out at like Banjo's beer bar. And they're just, yeah, they have huge glugs of beer and they're hitting on the girls and they're like, oh yeah, and I'm drunk on beer. And that's just what they do all day. And me being inquisitive and curious and a rebel in my own mind, (laughs) the first thing I took a deep dive into was craft beer. Craft beer has always been my first love. Um, It is something that I really dove into in college, um, deciphering. You know, I couldn't believe a Belgian tastes so different from, you know, a stout or like, you know, American beers from different regions even taste different. Wheats versus even rice lagers and, you know, stuff like that. So deciphering beer first before getting into wine was also a huge help. I didn't tell my parents ever that I drank beer until after I got married, where I think Andy, Andy's my husband, and he just was like, hey, I want a beer. I'm like, 
<laughs> like, shut up, shut up, shut up, don't say it. <laughs> but now, but now everything, now they're fine with it. And they know I'm, I've done the whole wine study thing and, and they're totally fine and super encouraging. They send me a monthly budget to go find them wine. But yeah, so yeah, so wine was, was never really at the table. <laughs> That's quite a journey and quite a turnaround that you are now sending them recommendations for wine and they're enjoying it. So they're drinking wine now. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we drink wine all day. Um, I'm actually doing a tasting back home. I'm going for my birthday um, and I've just gathered up the community in Jacksonville um, to do a wine tasting with me. And yeah, they're very supportive of, of the whole wine and beer and, and the way I can decipher it as food. And that's the thing. I think I was able to put it into a language that they understood. You know, a lot of times alcohol, especially I think in Eastern cultures, is introduced as a, a drug, as something that just gets you drunk. You just get wasted on it. And, you know, of course, yes, that does happen. And I'm not going to, you know, deny that. Like, of course, you're going to get drunk if you drink a lot. But no one is there for good education. You know, no one's there to decipher these flavors with you and explain it like food. And when that starts to happen and you're being educated properly, um, it's a whole other world. Speaking even back to your, now you have two menus and you're telling them these go hand in hand. These are complimentary. This is part of the dinner experience. And you're finding that. Did you have mentors that helped you find this voice along the way? Or has this kind of been a personal journey to find that acceptance in the culture of food and wine? Um, Yes, I've I've had a lot of mentors and, and supporters just throughout the years. Um, I started reading a lot of food books early on, and I mean, this might sound a little cliche, but um, Julia Child's books, um, uh, the whole series was a huge um, impact. Um, I understood her passion for cooking. I'm like madly in love with France. Um, and, <laughs> and like, I don't know, she never spoke of wine as a different thing. It was a component of the whole dinner journey and and everything. So I started writing letters to my local food writers <laughs> in, in Jacksonville. Like that's how much of a geek I am. I would just write little love letters just saying it's like I love your writing. Tell me more. And they would send me books to read. And I just read a lot. Um, and when I finally did take the leap to sign up for formal education, which I cannot encourage enough. But the professor, the first one who walked me through the class, we stay in touch all the time. I've poured wine with him in his classes. I always hit him up for recommendations. Um, so he's a big, big supporter. And then people like you who are so inspiring. I mean, just, you know, rocking it out with, you know, all of this amazing wine knowledge. And, and I know you do a wine and beer competition uh, with all of your uh, data that you've collected over the years. Incredible. I mean, yes, people <laughs> like you are, are a huge part of it. That's too kind, my friend. I also was sitting here while you were talking about your dive into beer. I was like, I want to compete with you in my wine versus beer dinner challenge. Ah! We're going to do it, but you have to be okay doing the beer pairings and I'll do the wine pairings, but we will compete. You got to bring that knowledge to the forefront. Yeah. When you find someone who helps you express your voice or continue your journey, that support is really key. And it sounds like you made the initiative to reach out to people that you were just really curious about, again, curiosity, but curious about their interests and then expressing your own interests. And then that keeps you on that path toward exploration, which I just absolutely love. Mm -hmm. Any advice 
for people wanting to play more in the kitchen with bold flavors. You you seem to be very adventurous, but where if someone doesn't have the spice cabinet that you do, where do we start? What do we do? Oh, goodness. You've got to start somewhere. And there's no shame to start from the very beginning. Um, spices are absolutely amazing. Think of spices like just the most fabulous accessories on your outfit. So it's like if you have like a simple black dress, what can like a gorgeous little necklace do to just like amp it up, boom, or like the perfect little earrings? Spices are the perfect accessory to any kitchen. And think once you start thinking of it like this and all the flavors are so different, um, you'll have so much fun and follow a recipe. You know, not everything will be intuitive. You know, not everything will be like, boom, boom, boom. I got it. Here's an amazing salad. No, um, follow a recipe online for a burrata salad with, I don't know, some fresh summer vegetables from your garden. If you plant some herbs, um, you will just have so much power in like cooking with something that you've grown. Uh, so yeah, take baby steps and you'll get there. And Hey, if you've got wine in the other hand, like you're halfway there. Vague adventurous seems to be the, the place to start. And also just starting small. Maybe it's a ingredient you have never used before, but just that one in that recipe, maybe that's baby steps, but you're stepping outside your comfort zone. So I support that. We both speak very highly of dessert pairings. I've noticed this. I'm like on a mission for people to like embrace the sweeter wine. And I actually just had one of my self-proclaimed it, my top three pairings. And I'm not saying even dessert pairings. I'm saying just food pairings. I just had that here in Atlanta and it involved a very off-dry Moscato and it was super beautiful. And I thought the pairing was just out of this world. So what's a go-to for you as a dessert or a contrast, like a sweet wine that you use as a contrast, or have you ever had a dessert pairing that is just outrageously amazing? Yes, yes, hold on. Let's see. Oh, yeah, it's convenient. It's right here. Show and um, tell. <laughs> so this is a, a really great Vera de Souza white port. It's it's a tenure that's like really nice. And ports tend to be so economically like uh, uh, easy. You know, they're not hundreds of dollars or anything. White port is one of my favorite wines to pair with food. So for this pop-up, I did this thing with, with my guests. So we had a meza style platter. So we had hummus with garlic confit. We had, um, you know, peas, mashed peas with herbs, dill, um, uh, cheeses and nuts and pomegranate. And then we had, what else did we have? Uh, goat cheese with candied bacon. Um, we had all these different things were salty, creamy, blah, 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 blah. Like all everything going on in the spectrum. And we started off that whole platter with this white port. And it just blew everyone. It's like, woo. It's like, wait a second, what? It's like, we, we're on the dessert glasses already. It's like, yes, 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 yes. So think of dessert wine like this. Would you pour honey over whatever it is that you're eating? So imagine if it's like a goat cheese with candied bacon. Honey on that is mm, so good. It's perfect. So when you take something nutty and caramelly, and it's not just sweet, right? Like it's got so many layers. It works so well with salty, just delicious, deep umami flavors. And then the next thing I did was we poured a very acidic white. And, and that's just to show you that something that you pair an acidic, lemony white wine with can also work with um, a dessert wine which I love starting out a meal with just a little pour of something sweet. So what did it feel like when you were seeing the faces of people when you're pouring something for them or they're enjoying it? 
that they may not have ever expected. How did that make you feel? Oh my gosh. I mean, selfishly amazing. <laughs> but no, like honestly, watching those eyes light up and, and watching people who's like, what? You know, I can't tell you how many times I hear, oh, I hate dessert wine. It's like, oh, I hate Riesling. Oh, I, I only do Chardonnays. And it's like, my, my brain literally twitches every time I hear that because it's like, I don't know, when you have an Oloroso Sherry um, with, with some tapas, um, it's, it, it just changes. It's just so great and, and gorgeous. And that's the other thing about, um, you know, Eastern foods is you put a lot of dried raisins on things and it's not just for dessert. It's, you know, it can be in the beginning too, especially for chats and, and stuff like that. Tamarind chutneys, which are sweet and earthy and, um, almost funky and sour, so those tastes, uh, I think, can come with sweet wines right off the bat. So It's that pop of flavor that you're talking about is missing. And when you describe the palette of maybe what's on the plate and you say what's missing sweet, you can add that. It doesn't have to be extreme. I'm hearing you still mention the balance is very key. Yeah, no, it is. Because even with sweet, you know, and I hate even using the word dessert wines just because people immediately think it's like, oh, for dessert. Actually, I kind of don't like ending with a heavy dessert wine, like with a heavy port or something that just sits there. Uh, ending with a lighter dessert wine, like a Sauternes, is, is kind of more delicate way to finish, like linger rather than weigh you down. Um, starting out with a bang, um, you know, is, is a way better way to go. So it's like nutty and sweet and smoky, peaty, you know, starting out with those things is appetizing. It gets your mouth watering. <laughs> I would have just loved to be in the room and watch people as you brought out the little glasses for your first course to be that. I just think <laughs> it's really creative and it just helps people have a little bit more fun with the exploration of kind of breaking some of those quote unquote rules and just having a good time with the food and wine pairing. I just think it's fantastic. You travel a lot too. So you're probably getting influence from a lot of different places that you go, but what do you want people to know about food and wine scene in Atlanta? What do you tell people when you travel? Oof, um, in Atlanta, I always say Michelin needs to come here and grade a couple of our restaurants because I think they're absolutely amazing. Um, I think we have an amazing wine community and uh, shops that really do highlight a lot of things that are new and funky and fun. And, you know, women winemakers are making a total scene. And I love that. And Atlanta, I think, is at the forefront of a lot of these changes. I mean, you know, when you go to California, when you go to Sonoma and Napa and all of those places, you see a lot of those ebbs and flows, a lot of those trends that are similar and happening here too. And I'm not talking about winemaking, it's just the market. Um, and you really do see that here. A lot of the wine shop owners in Atlanta are very educated, which is really, really hard to come by. They're not just sellers, they're educators. So that's kind of what I tell people when they come to Atlanta or about Atlanta when I travel is you just really just need to know where to go. And checking out the local shops and seeing yeah. who's behind the counter, who's in the shop helping you. That is a really cool thing that you brought that up because the education of the wine community here, I just feel like it just elevates and elevates every single week. Am I crazy? That's how I feel. I feel like there's always someone pushing the bar. 
I know, right? I mean, where else do you have, I mean, pairing, texting you going, it's like, oh, wait, I got so-and-so in. And do you want it? It's like, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and that's the thing. It's like being inquisitive, not being afraid to ask questions. And people, I, I, I hope that I speak for all of us who are passionate about food and wine. We love being asked questions. It's, you know, when you go up to the shop, tell them what you're having for dinner. Tell them what you're planning. I mean, I always go in and say, okay, I'm planning a Christmas feast. Here's what I'm doing day one. And I have five days worth of questions for you. And they love it. And making people get to talk about food and wine is always a very fun conversation. So you really can't go wrong in that. I feel like there's always going to be an interesting tidbit that comes out of that. So yes, conversation and finding those local professionals. I think that's a really cool, unique thing about Atlanta as well is, is the wine shop scene. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense of why I see you go to Preen's a lot. Now, I, now it all makes sense. Okay. So what is next for you? You're using all of this knowledge. You've been collecting these ideas, big goals. How will you combine your knowledge and skills going forward? Oh, gosh, um, I wish I knew, uh, but I think there's a beauty in not knowing. Uh, to be honest with you, reading a lot of these wine magazines like Noble Rot or, um, gosh, was it the Pet Nat, which which I know is no longer publishing all that, but reading a lot of these startup magazines about wine always tend to depict a food scene where you're breaking bread with someone, you're breaking bread with strangers, you're sitting at this rustic table in the middle of a field, and you're breaking bread with someone. And I always read that and I go, it's like, where? <laughs> where are you doing that? Like, where is this happening? So the reason why I did this pop-up is because I wanted to create that for myself and the people that were around me. I wanted us to have a rustic table of food, an intelligent conversation that was informal and break bread. Uh, and, and I found so much joy just from doing that by building, talking to people, um, cooking, drinking. It was just so fun. I hope to do that a lot more, um, but do it in a way that's very thoughtful instead of just, you know, a random dinner, <laughs> you know, re well researched, well choreographed. So that's where I'm hoping all of this will go to, just having more dinner scenes with a lot more people. Um, and we'll see, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> Well, we're really lucky that that is being dreamed up here in Atlanta with you. So I, I feel like I'm going to be uh, needing to find out when these next ones are because it is very thoughtful. It's very intentional. And I could tell that every detail was planned in, in like a very like soulful way. Like it was you on the plate, but it was also you in the design of the space and everything. So really, really cool. How can people find you to connect with you and learn more about future pop-ups? Yes. Um, follow me on Instagram. I, I, I don't know what's trendy anymore. It's like, I'm not on TikTok. It's like, just don't have time for it, I guess at this point, but I am very active on Instagram. I love answering questions about food and wine pairings. Uh, honestly, when my DMs light up with those questions, it's my favorite thing to do. So never feel like you're bothering me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, follow me on Instagram at Hannah Bakshi. Um, and yeah, uh, let's get to talking. Okay. And what are you drinking right now? Before I let you go, you need to tell me what's, what's your favorite thing that you've had recently that people should seek out any, like what's hot for you right now? Okay. It's a really cookie wine. Hold on. Oh, you have it. <laughs> Again, show and tell. This is becoming very good. If it's in hand reach, I know it is a go-to for you. 
Oh yeah, no, for sure. This one has a tag. Let me show you. It's, it literally says don't drink until 2025. So I'm trying not to, but <laughs> this drink's really good fresh. Um, it's an Elbling. The grape varietal is Elbling. It's from Mosul and it's from Dr. Stein. Um, it's a delicious, absolutely incredible wine. It's very mineral, very, a, a lot of salinity. Salinity is probably my favorite thing in wine. Just a lot of salt character and makes sense. It's very foody. Um, so yeah, this Elbling from Dr. Stein is just gorgeous. I found this at Lucent Books and Wine. Um, they're absolutely amazing. If you haven't gone there, you should totally check it out. The wine book reads like a true storybook, like a novel, like just to take your time and reading it. It's amazing. I forgot. That's another place we both mutually love very much. <laughs> no, I love that place. Oh my God. It's so good. That wine sounds like it's something enjoy now, but then cool that you are you're going to have constraint to not open it. You're going to let it change in the bottle. It's going to be a completely different wine in 2025. Yeah. I got a whole case of this thing. It's like, <laughs> I'm just seeing how it evolves and, and how, it, how it moves forward. But there are some bottles I was advised, give them three years and see how incredible they become. So I'm going to do that. I think I can do it. That takes self-control. <laughs> and I, I wish you all the best on that endeavor. And I think you can do it too, because you were very curious about the evolution in the bottle. And if you want that to happen, you will put that tag on and you will not open that bottle. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And there's plenty other stuff to drink until then. So my husband calls those other wines. He calls those cellar defenders. Those are the <laughs> ones that stand in the way of what you want to be aging. So best of luck to you with your army of cellar defenders while you let the other ones age. And oh, I can't God. thank you enough for your time today and your energy and your insights. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. This is awesome. More food and wine adventures to come. Cheers yeah. to you. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the A Cork in the Road podcast, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, and interviewing people who are changing the wine world in the Southeast and beyond. You can find more about A Cork in the Road at, at A Cork in the Road on Instagram, and make sure to check us out on www.acorkintheroad.com. See you soon, guys. Cheers.